0: Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Remember that you can catch this episode and other deep explorations of blockchain trends on Cointelegraph magazine at www.cointelegraph.com. Very quick disclaimer, nothing we say here is investment advice. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. I'm very excited to be joined today by Mark Weinstein, head of platform at Mechanism Capital. Mark, it's uh, it's great to have you on. Thanks for having me, Josh. And so you know, I know you laughed when I, I put this in the uh, <laughs> in in the Google Doc of the questions, and I know you're like really, but you know, you know, you are known for for playing a little bit of a role in in Fire Festival. Uh, you know, being the good guy uh, in the story. Uh, but I, I'd love if you could give us like a very very quick overview of your involvement in Fire Festival because I think n- no story with you is complete without that. And and just for anybody <laughs> listening, you can listen to Mark did an entire two and a half hour podcast. On what, what Bitcoin did to talk about the topic. So if you're interested and you think it's more interesting than what we're going to talk about, you know, hop over there and then hopefully you come back after. But uh, yeah, why don't you <laughs> give us the little uh, the little I rundown? I remember
1: Peter going on Peter's podcast and basically being like, "So we're going to talk about crypto, right?" And he's like, "Yeah, but we're going to talk about fire, like predominantly, because that's all anybody really really cares about." No offense. Uh, I was <laughs> like, "All right, cool. Well, let me get a little bit of a crypto plug here." So yeah, I mean, Fire Festival is interesting. It's now been um four years uh, since I kind of signed up to be an advisor to that um, to that festival. You know, my friend who works at a venture fund, uh, not to be named, was looking at investing in Fire App, which was this kind of talent booking app. And I was in the process of selling my my second company, which was called Nineties Fest, which was a music festival business and digital marketing, uh, firm uh, to this company called Scopely. And he was like, Hey man, you know, this is an interesting company. They're launching their product with this massive festival. Uh, you've experienced producing festivals. I think that it would be cool for you to, you know, advise them to help them out. So I flew down to the Island, uh, and the rest is, is kind of history, but it was definitely a, uh, a wild experience.
0: And so I w I won't make you go into any more detail, but you know, Definitely check out Peter's episode, or or even the you know the the you know I'm sure many of you have seen Mark in uh, in the movie already. So uh, let's 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 remove Fire Festival from the equation. We got the <laughs> elephant out of the room, and so let's let's dive in. And so, can you talk to us about your life? Uh, you know, pre crypto, right? You started in traditional finance, and you know entered into you know the music industry and a few different things. So I'd love to kind of hear your background before you found uh, you know crypto.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll try to make a long story and it's getting longer. Um, 13 years since I graduated college now, it's insane. Um, but I studied finance undergraduate at Wharton, uh, was really passionate and interested in macroeconomics, uh, came up in 2008, my junior year, the financial crisis hit, a lot of my friends lost their jobs working at Lehman and Bear Stearns, um, and other, other firms, OCR on campus recruiting, as it's called at Penn, just slowed down as most of the companies were not hiring. And what was funny to me was that like, none of my professors had predicted that any of this would happen. And these are kind of the top finance professors in the world. And then after the fact, I think even few still could really explain what had gone down. I did an independent study on uh, financial crises um, my senior year, and kind of got hooked by the Austrian economists. So uh, Mises, read Human Action, uh, Hayek, and you know, the ideas that they put forth um, kind of made sense to me uh, and started thinking a lot about quantitative easing and uh, hard money policy uh, versus kind of this nebulous, uh, central bank dictated fiat system that we had and was a little bit concerned that we were gonna experience inflation. So I graduated uh, that year and ended up working in investment banking. I worked in Jefferies on their m and team And then I worked at Morgan Stanley on their financial sponsors team. We provided kind of debt and equity financing to the Blackstones and KKRs of the world. Uh, And I actually um, received a job offer from a private equity fund in San Francisco called Toma Bravo, uh, which at the time was, I think, like a billion dollar fund. Now they're like 15 billion. And I think uh, a friend of mine recently told me that I was the only person to ever turn down uh, an offer from Toma Bravo. So I guess, you know, take that for... For what it's worth, because that's been something that you know, you always look back and play like, what if I had done this? And for some time, I was like, man, what if I had actually just taken that job instead of trying to build something? And now it's kind of like a, a fun little claim to fame that I have uh, for myself. But basically, turned down this job offer because I wanted to build. Uh, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to build companies and take that shot. Uh, and as someone that was really fascinated by all of the money printing that was happening. I wanted to create a product that would protect investors against the inflationary impact of quantitative easing and this was now like 2013 Um, bill gross was at pimco kind of talking about inflation he was the ceo over there Uh, and inflation at least in the cpi never happened i was 23 my partner was 24 we were selling cpi plus asset-backed loans that were issued by companies whose inventories actually made up the CPI index. So think like canned foods and toilet paper and other uh, consumer durables. And the idea was to create a private market alternative to inflation-linked securities issued by governments or TIPS, we called the product KIPS, Corporate Inflation Protected Securities. And so there was 23, partner 24, selling inflation protection and low interest and safety with zero track record to institutions when no inflation was coming and obviously decided to throw in the towel on that after about a year and a half of um, hard selling. And it was at at this time, actually, between that and my next startup company, which was called 90s Fest, um, that I was reintroduced to Bitcoin. So I read the Bitcoin white paper in 2011 when I was at Jefferies, thought it was interesting, kind of brushed it off as kitschy. um, And then I read it again in 2013 And the idea of a non-sovereign digital store value really resonated with me. And so I took what little savings I had left after being a failed startup entrepreneur and invested in Bitcoin Uh, and the price doubled. Um, And then the price collapsed 70% because of Mt. Gox. And I was like, okay, this is either going to be a zero or like a 10,000 X. And, you know, really kind of anchoring the market cap of Bitcoin to the gold market cap and, I think today, the, I guess it was the CEO of Goldman Sachs said that he thinks that Bitcoin should trade like gold or should have an equivalent market cap at some point. So that's pretty big news. And that's when I started my second company in the music industry. And I said this was going to be a long story short. So I'll fast forward through that piece of it. I basically was tired of kind of highfalutin financial ideas, uh, wanted to build as an entrepreneur, something practical, something tangible where I can see firsthand um, the users and the consumers or the attendees in, in my case, participating and uh, something that was maybe a little bit smaller in scale, but that, that I could sell to a larger company like Live Nation or something. And you know, that experience uh, started because I was paying the bills as essentially a small business investment banker for companies that were raising capital. And one of the companies I raised for was called Prime Social Group. Uh, they're, still one of the largest independent festival promoters in the country, Uh, and I just found the business to be super, super interesting and fun. It was actually at Fire, believe it or not, in 2017 that I learned about Ethereum. One of the producers there had invested. In January 2017, my Bitcoin investment was profitable for the first time in a number of years, and I realized that something was happening uh, in this space that was much bigger than Bitcoin, and I intended to learn as much as I possibly could. So, after fire I uh, took some Bitcoin and I invested in ethereum uh, and then I got swept up into the 2017 ico mania uh, in Los Angeles I actually worked at a company as a consultant called DNA that was you know really involved in a number of icos uh, in 2017 you know I remember sitting in my first pitch day there were like seven projects that pitched us and uh, just was so blown away like I was I was quiet you know this was like at this time, it was blockchain. I'm for actually everything.
0: curious what what were do you remember any of the projects that pitched mm-hmm, you, or any mm-hmm. still around?
1: Yes, so Compound came in and pitched in February 2018. Uh, I think they had actually finished their um, their private sale at that time. I don't think they were doing a money market; it was something quite different, if I remember correctly. Calvin came and pitched. I remember having a long conversation with him afterwards because I basically couldn't shake the. Um, I couldn't shake the idea that DeFi was just rebuild and it wasn't DeFi at the time, but that this was just going to rebuild a lot of the issues that we faced in the previous financial crisis. And I kind of, I think I missed a lot of DeFi uh, because this was my take, you know, was that financial contagion um, through all of the layers of leverage is going to lead to some kind of blow up and it still might. Um, you know, and Santiago from Parify often talks about how, well, at least everything's on chain and it's transparent. And I agree with that. However, I think that there's very few individuals, um, and enterprises who can currently evaluate the complexity of the layered, um, you know, the benefit of DeFi, which is composability, but the layers of leverage and, uh, protocol risk, uh, and counterparty risk with smart contract to smart contract lending. That's in this. That's happening, even though it's transparent and on chain. I think very few people can really understand it or predict if there is some kind of unwinding. And you know, we see the impact of like die breaking its peg in a dramatic way, and compound users getting liquidated massively. So, still a lot of risk there. But anyways, that's a big aside. Um, and if you listen to my podcast with Roy Lerner, who I worked with at Wave Financial, and Jason Choi, Block Crunch, in like January of 2019, we talked about defi and i was basically like the defi bear and roy was the defi bull and we were talking a lot about this and of course on the way towards some kind of you know black swan event in defi there's a lot of value to be created and i clearly um wasn't really thinking about that uh, i was
0: at a uh, i was at an event in uh, uh late 2018 i think it was a crypto briefing defi event and at that time andre uh, was actually at crypto briefing still, I believe. And, uh, you know, Maker was there, you know, a bunch of these early DeFi projects were there. And I just wanted to network. Like I was, I just didn't even listen. I was so dismissive. I just didn't get it. It's, uh, that was a, that was an 1000X. Yeah. I'll never get back.
1: Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> we can talk about misses. I mean, we have to talk about that because I've got so many under my belt. I think you can't be in this space for a couple of years without having a story or two about the one that got away. Some others that came to pitch, uh, Videocoin was another one that came to pitch, Hypernet Switch, which was building renewable energy credits on the blockchain, which I actually think is still a pretty damn good idea. There's a company called Nori that raised from Paradigm that is working on building a new type of carbon credit that's verifiable um, on the blockchain. So, you know, a lot of ideas are just a little bit ahead of their time. And a lot of these projects suffered from kind of the token velocity issue, right? Which was they were all payment tokens and there was no reason to hold them. Uh, and then later on after I joined Wave, so I, I left DNA. DNA kind of had this little little split where half of the team went to Wave Financial. Half of the team ended up at Casper Labs, uh, who just did their coin list offering. Um, and I ended up at Wave uh, and led venture venture uh, there for our our venture team, you know, we were building structured products and doing a lot of other funds, but we had a small venture fund, which has gotten larger since. Uh, and I worked with this gentleman named Dave Seamer and Les Borsai, uh, who are the partners over there, and just had an incredible team around me. I mean, you, we were talking about some of the names like Avi Feldman, who you had on the show before. He's now running uh, a trading at, at Block Tower. Roy Lerner ended up at Framework and um, the Framework Labs team. Tom Lombardi at 3iQ. Uh, just some exceptional people. And shout out to Ben Sai, who's still at Wave. He's, he's extremely bright, ex-Morgan you know, ex Stanley, asset management, um, structured products, just knows the stuff cold. So that was a fun experience. But when I got to Wave, it was like, you know, this generalized mining thing started to become a trend. And I remember Jake Bruckman speaking about it on Twitter. And that was my first interaction with Jake, started going back and forth on it. You know, now you basically... There was this concept of velocity sinks where you know maybe you what what can you do to make a token to make people want to hold a token and people were going through all these mental gymnastics in 2017 and 2018 to try to create utility for the token um and then generalized mining came along you know for tokens like live Peer, um and then tezos baking and then of course i think this DeFi wave kind of blew up i think compound um, and synthetics really nailing uh, the incentivization of people using that, using their protocols uh, through, you know, through what later became yield farming and and other things. But it's been fascinating to watch the evolution over the years.
0: And so, you know, speaking of your experience at Wave, you know, you were on that early stage team that invested in, you know, a number of pro- projects, but two, you know, home runs. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll speak on your behalf, which was you guys were very early and near Uh, And you were very early in scale, uh, you know, along with other projects. And so I'm curious, you know, what did your due diligence process look like, uh, you know, at Wave? And what made you decide to allocate to a particular project? And, you know, how does that differ from what you're doing today?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think in the case of Near and Scale, you know, we were building the thesis. Well, with Scale in particular, we were building the thesis that layer twos on Ethereum were super important we're going to become a thing um you know technically determining at that time whether it would be optimistic or, or ZK roll-ups I think was you know very early and and challenging uh, I still think that people believe that Zks are um, you know are the better technical solution um, but are you know challenged in a number of ways particularly you know they're not not able to uh, you're not able to do smart contracts uh, on ZK rollups as yet. And surprisingly to many, I think um, ZK EVM from Matter Labs is supposed to launch in a couple of months, um, which would put them ahead of optimism uh, as far as layer two, you know, EV, layer two compatible EVM, um, EVM compatible layer two. Uh, and so, you know, with scale, it was we had this thesis, we met the team and Jack. Uh, was the type of founder that you just wanted to back. You know, he he put an incredible team around him. Um, he was someone that executed extremely well. Um, he understood kind of how to play both the crypto market dynamics as well as the technical side of things and and build a working product. Which I think you know a lot of crypto you can you can kind of fall into like the bucket of hyper academic, but not really diligent in terms of like delivering on on product deadlines um, and shipping. Uh, and then the other side of it is on the other extreme is kind of just like vaporware, uh, and I think Jack had the the kind of tenacity to build and execute. So that was really the really the process at the time it was like you know build a thesis and then look for the best teams that were that were developing in um, in each space, and of course like Ethereum scaling still an issue today. Um, two years later, the Near protocol team. Um, we're another case of an exceptional team that just shipped. Um, and they've been, you know, working extremely hard. They just launched, I think, the rainbow bridge to Ethereum. And we felt, you know, we felt that at a $30 million valuation, I think it was at that time, there was just a ton of upside.
0: And so, you know, I was going to wait for this later, but you already got into, you know, this this layer one conversation, right? The near Ethereum and the need for, you know, layer two on Ethereum. And so, you know, I'm curious, you know, your thoughts on on layer ones broadly. I mean, you know, would love to to dive into, you know, near, but, you know, also talk about, you know, some of the other layer ones that are you know coming out. Uh, you know, whether it be Polkadot really rolling out or, you know, Solana, which is gaining traction, Binance Smart Chain, you know, Avalanche, Tezos, you name it, you know, do you think this is a winner-take-all race? Uh, do you think Ethereum has lost, you know, some ground? I mean, wh- what is your, where where do you currently stand, you know, as it relates to layer ones? And, you know, yeah, I mean, just love to get your thoughts there broadly.
1: I think you're you're seeing the success of competing layer ones, well, in terms of use, right, like Binance Smart Chain is probably leading the charge as far as layer one competition from actual users um, and volume goes. I think Solana is still early, but they're starting to build traction. Uh, I think, you know, obviously Polkadot were waiting for a kind of parachain auctions. And I think that's going to set off a whole wave of um, new possibilities and certainly new, you know, new financial opportunities for investors as these parachain auctions take off i think that many you know the reason why these layer 1s are evm compatible is to make it easy to port over kind of liquidity and users from ethereum which to me makes each of these layer 1s in a way like an ethereum sidechain with a particular use case right like binance smart chain is is faster but it's not as it's not as secure i mean nobody could argue that it that it has anywhere near the security of Ethereum and many builders in the in the DeFi space on Ethereum would probably argue that it's decentralization theater. You know that there's a lot of keyman risk with CZ, even though there's you know there's as many nodes on running on Binance Smart Chain as there are on some of these um, other kind of like more hyped up, you know, layer ones and layer twos. I think I think we will live in a world where there's going to be potentially app specific layer ones like Flow is another example of one that has traction with NBA Top Shots. You know, clearly they wanted to build something that was very specific for the users that they wanted to onboard into their ecosystem. You know, it's,
0: it's interesting that you say that, because like that's the way a lot of stuff was built originally, right? And it seems like we moved away from that with Ethereum. Uh, and and it's funny to see, you know, with your example of Flow, you know, that coming back a bit. So that's, a, that's an interesting take.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we might see layer, layer ones that are just app specific and they'll all, they'll all be interoperable, right? Like we have bridges that are connecting to Ethereum. I, I just today used the Matic bridge, you know, it, it was seamless. Uh, it was as painless as just doing any other transaction using my MetaMask wallet. Uh, and then I was farming, you know, farming stable coins on Aave, on Matic. And that experience just feels, you know, like when you, when you start to use these products, I think that's when it gets even more exciting. It's just like I, I don't think you can be in this space if you're not using these things on a daily basis. It's funny, you
0: know. We we chatted before, and you're like, "Oh yeah, I'm not really the DeFi guy. I don't really want to go into you know into DeFi." And then you're talking about you know farming on Matic. Uh, you know, I, I can't imagine there are many people who have who have who have fallen down that rabbit hole yet. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I haven't tried Matic yet.
1: So I'm a user. You know, I'm a user of these protocols. But like, there's just so many galaxy brains. Like, even on my team, right? You know, between Daryl, Andrew, and Ben, and now Eva, like, it's just like, wow, every day I'm blown away by the intelligence in this space. And so, you know, for a show, show like yours, when your your audience are super knowledgeable, you know, for me, it's just, I think they're going to want to go a layer deeper. You know, and that's all I was saying. But yeah, I mean, I, I love using these things. I think it's super interesting. I think that being your own bank is very, very cool. It's also very scary. You know, like, I, have you ever lost a private key?
0: <laughs> I, I have not lost a private key. I, I've been rug pulled about 100 times, but I have not lost a private key.
1: <laughs> where, where did you ape into some of Andre's <laughs> projects?
0: I've <laughs> aped into so many things. My favorite thing, and I do not recommend this to anybody listening, I recommend you look at this, but if you go on bscscan.com, which is owned by the Etherscan folks, uh, they're not really upkeeping it, but under mis- uh, under resource, there's thing called yield farms list. And it's all the garbage yield farms on Binance Smart Chain. And so I'm going down the list now, Dumpling Swap, you know. Poyo Finance, Juicy Peach Swap, Mooncake Swap, Gecko Swap, Yellve <laughs> Finance.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: Oh, s- I, I may or may not have been in some of these things previously listed. I think I when tried I- to
1: do the the BAS clone. It was like a clone of a clone of a clone of an Algo Stable. I think it was called Soup Dumpling <laughs> on Binance Smart Chain. <laughs> my like- favorite
0: thing is that everything on Binance Smart Chain is a pancake swap. Uh like
1: like for every single yeah. thing. Yeah. And now, I mean, it's what's super interesting is like, okay, right. You talk about the importance of infrastructure being built on these layer ones. And I, that's why I don't think, yeah, maybe Ethereum's losing market share in terms of like where dollars are flowing for investment, but the infrastructure is just still so much better on Ethereum. And like something as simple as, you know, querying data on Binance Smart Chain is just so hard because the existing solutions that are out there aren't able to keep up with the volume and the rate of data that's, that's streaming essentially um, from this chain. And so, you know, companies like Covalent, um, who we invested in uh, are trying to solve, you know, trying to solve these problems for, for a multi-chain world where you're going to need data um, availability for a lot of different activities that you do across all of these networks.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And I think, you know, Uh, You know, I guess a question that I have, you know, as it relates to all of these, you know, different networks as well is, is how much does the actual blockchain itself matter and the technological capabilities of the blockchain, whether that be speed or transaction costs or decentralization or data access or anything else matter versus community versus the applications that are actually being built on top of them, because I don't think anybody can argue that Ethereum has by far the best applications built on top of it it's got by far the biggest community it's got by far the best developers and the most developers but it's a lot cheaper to use binance smart chain it's a lot faster if you're just trying to trade it's a better experience and so i'm curious you know your thoughts in the long run you know i, I guess when you said everything will be ethereum smart chain i mean i guess that's your kind of take but i you know if you have anything else to add
1: yeah, I mean, everything, basically, I think that a lot of these will anchor back to the security of Ethereum. And that's, you know, that's super important. As far as like, what's the most important element? Like, you know, the reason why Binance Smart Chain is taking off is because they are just a marketing machine to retail investors, specifically in emerging markets, who can't afford to pay 60 to $100 on a transaction for gas, right? Like, it's just it's just it's boxed so many users off of, out of DeFi, cause it's just way too expensive for them. And so Binance can market that to just this mass of retail users and they do have real volume. You know, we've done the work, you know, we, we invested in PancakeSwap, like we did the work up front because a lot of really intelligent people were just like, there's no way that volume is real. There's no way it's real. Um, there's no way the users are real. And just every, every day we continue to see that the activity on Binance Smart Chain is real. No, I
0: mean, it's, it's great. Like I, I use it to access garbage because the yields are insane. And I'm also like, you know, you know, full transparency. I, I have a decent, you know, pancake swap position and like the, the cake pool on pancake swap has yielded so much money. It's ridiculous. Cause I mean, you were like, you, know, you know, I was.
1: A, what'd you say? Sorry. You're a prophet Maxie. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, you could still get a hundred percent APR on cake and because there's no, there's effectively no transactional fees on Binance Smart Chain, right? If you're compounding that you can get close to a 300% APY on top of the fact that, you know, pancake swap is up what, like 2000% in the last few months.
1: Yeah. Uh, It's it's at a dollar. And I think in, in January, it's like $23 now. Yeah. Which is, uh, which is crazy. It's It's uh, wild. I mean, like, Look, like the market is euphoric right now, you know, going into the Coinbase IPO today. I, I don't know, like I, we, we also have internal debates on the longevity of Binance Smart Chain in particular. You know, people have bet against CZ um, for a long time, you know, and uh, he continues to prove them wrong. So it, I think that Binance Smart Chain will be around, you know, for some time. Um, I, I know the Solana team are eager to you know, to be shipping more apps, building on top, more users, et cetera. What it's- do you
0: think of Solana acceptance so far? It seems to me like all these airdrops are finally bringing people into the ecosystem, but I'm curious to your thoughts.
1: I think that there is a large amount of capital that is mercenary in nature that flows through crypto and it will go where um, the the highest yields are. And if a protocol is incentivizing people to, you know, to participate in whatever app is on their protocol in this way, people will go there. And you know, again, speaking to like the Matic experience today, once you, once you kind of use Binance Smart Chain or, or Matic and you realize what it could be like without, you know, without gas fees and, and transactions getting confirmed much faster, It's kind of like oh wow like this is how it's how it's supposed to be and then people will stay you know and if they think if they think that solana is sufficiently decentralized i think that ethereum power users will move over there as well but you know eth is still is still the you know still the big boy still the incumbent moving towards 1559 you know a lot of layer two optimism was supposed to launch this month it's going to launch likely in august i believe maybe sooner i'm not sure what they're saying I don't know. I mean, it's anyone's guess. And like
0: 1559 if we, is what? That's look, next month.
1: Look, like Cat, Casper Labs was raising in in 2018 for another Ethereum killer, another layer one chain, right? And like this was right after Hashgraph had just done a huge raise. You know, I don't see a lot of traction on Hashgraph. I'm not sure what they're up to. You know, there was just so many Ethereum killers at this time. Polkadot was you could buy a polka dot saft for what's now would be the equivalent of sixty five cents per dot OTC. You know, like P- Filecoin was going for three fifty, I think. Like it was just there was no conviction that any of these things would have value in two years. People were super bearish, and like if you had told me that Casper Labs would launch at a three hundred million dollar valuation on Coinlist, and then you know probably it's trading, I think on coin market cap, like there's some kind of future at like $2 per, which I think puts it at, at, at multiple billion dollar valuations, like I would have said, absolutely not. You know, it's it's the valuations for a lot of these layer ones, you know, is, is still pretty, pretty incredible uh, relative to the traction. Yeah. And, and does that concern you? I mean, yes and no. Um, I think, I think that There's a lot of euphoria um, in crypto markets today. I think I mentioned that earlier, like, you know, the Coinbase IPO looking like either, you know, a great, you know, one, like, objectively outside of price movements, like a pivotal moment for the space. Incredible, you know, like. People wrote off Coinbase as well, right after the first the first market downturn in, in 2014 after Gox. Like,
0: oh, I I remember. I mean, not even 2014, but but in in 2018 after they raised that you know that round at I think it was about an eight billion dollar valuation. Seven billion dollar valuation, and I, people were I,
1: laughing. I invested in that round, and I and I had buyer's remorse. I had buyer's remorse on that one immediately. I was like, I should have just bought Bitcoin, uh, and I think I think that as of today it will have outperformed a bitcoin investment at that time but, but maybe the not. thing to keep in not. mind is you may maybe have you had, sold the bitcoin yeah exactly so you kind of like this is another thing that i'm realizing is like the forced hold is incredible on venture investments like liquidity is a gift and a curse right because you right. because we're all subject to the emotions that the market creates for us right fear and greed and um and it's hard not it's hard to i think Two of the hardest things in this space, one is sizing a position with enough conviction when others don't believe in it. And the other is then continuing to hold through the volatility, um, when you've realized some pretty exceptional gains, right? Like selling Rune at a 10 X is that that's a great outcome in any industry to do that in a year's time, except in crypto, because it's a thousand X, you know? half a year later. And, and there's a lot of that in this space. And then staying sane and being like, okay, there's going to be other, other at bats. I think, I I don't know. I mean, uh, where valuations are today. I, I like a good gut check is to speak to someone that's raising capital, not in the crypto space. Speak to someone that's working on a seed stage startup that has shipped a minimum viable product that has users and can barely get a 15 million dollar valuation on a safe valuation cap on a safe you know and then we see projects in the private market right now that are you know pre-product raising at 40 50 100 200 million dollar fully diluted market caps
0: i i had a i i got pitched on a on a new governance token, which is, uh, you know, not launched at, you know, about a $600 million market cap uh, for a non-existent
1: product. And that's the thing, right? Like most, most investors in crypto are playing the RV game. So it's all about relative value, right? Like look at the exchange token run up over the Mm -hmm. last two months, it's all been about the, the relative value to Coinbase. And that logic makes sense. But that's, that's why, like, it's hard to beat beta as a crypto manager. You know, it's hard to beat Bitcoin because right. these assets are reflexive on the way up and reflexive on the way down. And they, on the way down, everything seems correlated. Right? There's just really not a lot of safety. So, while you know your this, that protocol that was raising at six hundred million might point to a number of others that are live that you know, could suggest it should trade at a $5 billion valuation right now. Um, The question is like, when everything turns in the other direction, you're basically, I guess, like, what would be a good analogy? Like you're, I mean, you're anchoring yourself to a sinking ship essentially or tethering yourself to a sinking ship. So I guess what I can say from like experience through these market cycles is Mm -hmm. take profits, you know, like FOMO is real. We all experience it. You know, try not to kind of look at all of the things that you missed because there's a. If you're listening to this, you've probably done really well for yourself um, in this space by any kind of relative metric to other industries. And you know, valuations are kind of the good thing about these valuations. On the flip side, like going to a positive note, is every time we have these bull cycles, we get a wave of new talent entering entering the space. You know, new talent from financial institutions, new talent on the engineering and tech side, which is so badly needed. You know, developer talent um, in this space is so... I mean, the
0: applications we're seeing now are incredible. You yeah. know, it's like people at, you know, places like BlackRock and Goldman are applying to work for me. I'm like, what? Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 it's so insane. funny. And it, it's funny. I was talking to uh, uh, Hassan Basiri, who's a good friend who's, you know... Yeah, from uh, from arca exactly you should have him on this show we we did it was actually on the show i'm actually going for dinner after after we record with him he's a he's he's a good good guy i uh, definitely will do but anyways we were joking on the podcast we're like neither of us could get a job today like if we were applying into crypto today there's no chance we would have gotten a job zero
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) yeah man i feel that and um and it's a great time to enter the space uh you know on the flip side of that in 2019 if you were looking for a job Crypto companies weren't hiring, so now it's like all everyone's hiring, but there's just you know there's a sea of applications, um, but still not enough developers. There's still not enough developers. Like we need we need more developers in, in crypto. And one of the hard things as well is like if you're a good dev, right? Like because of what's happening with DeFi, you can make so much money just kind of doing your own thing that it's hard to even motivate developers. So you need founders that are inspiring, that have a, a multi-year vision. That want to build something that's going to change the world or the future, um, and not just kind of like an iteration of an iteration of an iteration, because those things, those, those deals will disappear in a bear market. I think we see a lot of investors kind of accepting higher valuations because of early liquidity. So, you know, if you have a, if you invest in a token and there's like a 35% unlock. And that unlock, you know, might return two to three extra principal, um, and then you have sixty five percent that you let ride. You can continue to rinse and repeat that strategy, uh, and I think there is a lot of investors that do, and so that keeps valuations elevated because investors don't really care about the valuation necessarily. Um, but you know, it's it's just that game has to end at some point, right?
0: Yeah. No, one hundred percent, one hundred percent, and so. You know, in the middle of this game, right, where things are going up, you know, the average exchange token is up 1,250% um, since the start of the year, the average, yeah. uh, you know, and the average, you know, smart contract platform is up, you know, 400%, right, all of these different, you know, all of these different assets are up, right, you you come from a, a more of a venture background, and, and I believe mechanism and, you know, you know, you in this, you can also introduce mechanism in what you do, you know, which would be great. But, you know, right. how do you find those early stage venture bets, those opportunities? Because as a venture investor, right, you're trying to go 100x, right, and and you could be wrong 80 out of 100 times, but if you're right that one time, you know that makes the entire portfolio. And so, you know, curious as to how you even try to find that in this market.
1: Yeah, so just speaking to Mechanism Capital, um, it was founded by Andrew Kang and Daryl Lau, uh, and after DeFi Summer. Uh, Benjamin Simon joined the team right after that. And I joined right after Ben. Uh, My role is head of platform. So I'm in a hybrid role. I source opportunities for investment and help research investment opportunities. Uh, But I also am kind of like an outsourced COO, CSO, sometimes a psychologist um, for founders. Right. And I think that building, being a founder of any startup I've done two is hard enough. Uh, it's extremely challenging. The odds are stacked against you. You know Most startups do fail. Uh, you have to convince a lot of people of your vision. You have to deliver time and time again. You're always capital raising. It's just extremely, extremely challenging. But then tack on public market scrutiny to private market problems of a startup founder, building a community, satiating that community, having a publicly listed token price you know, when your product, you're constantly shipping in production or iterating. Plus, you know, anons in crypto that are just going to rip you to shreds. Yeah, like Twitter anons that are just like nothing you do can be right. So you do you do a fair launch with a cap TVL and everybody says, oh, it's, you know, it's a whales game because you capped the TVL and only a couple of whales got in. You uncap the tvl then you get a billion dollars worth of apes coming in who don't understand the protocol and the thing goes works against them and then they're screaming that it doesn't work and that you know you need to you need to refund the dollars because you fucked up you know like and and it's funny because there's so many scammers in in the crypto space who are literally outright like producing just vaporware and then there are founders who are trying to build in earnest who just fall on the wrong side of the community and just get absolutely skewered which is you know which is one of the interesting phenomenon of this space i think as well that's challenging so like i i love my job i think working with founders um, to help them right like it's the little things it's finding talent it's like knowing knowing who to turn to when you need when you need a press release to go out it's about figuring out the right marketing strategy it's about working through you know then it's some bigger things like working through liquidity targeting programs you know because ultimately that's how you're building and rewarding your user base um, thinking about integrations with other DeFi protocols, uh, all these things we do at Mechanism, and I think right now because there's so much liquidity sloshing around, that every venture investor's cash is green. Deals are getting squeezed, allocations are getting squeezed every day on deals. Large funds are taking the full a full ten million dollar raise and pushing everyone else out. And the only way to differentiate yourself is to go to bat for your founders. And so that's kind of how I see my role, and I think that Mechanism and the rest of the guys there want to be as supportive to our founders as possible. Um, And a lot of people pay lip service to that. But I think if you speak to the companies that we've invested in, they would agree that that's our, that's kind of like what we live by. And as far as kind of like what we look for, you know, Mechanism started as a DeFi focused fund. Um, I joined in September and I've been really, really fascinated by um, the NFT landscape and the open metaverse uh, and what that means um, for the future and have, you know as an angel investor personally invested in a number of projects and started kind of speaking to the guys about about that landscape and you know we've made a couple of investments there as well so um now we're you know we're doing more than just DeFi. we've invested so in the infrastructure. Sh- show the book
0: yeah let's hear let's hear what you're interested in on the nft space i'm i'm, I'm allowing you to show the book right here sh- show
1: the book um well i want to mention xdefi which you know we we do infrastructure investing and xdefi is a uh, metamask competitor browser extension wallet Cross-chain compatible. You can um, trade Bitcoin, uh, Binance Smart Chain assets, ERC twenty assets, and Ethereum uh, through the wallet. They have a private beta going. The public public launch is coming soon. The team uh, is just a bunch of savages. They they're crypto native for a number of years. They know the game. They wanted to build something for people that have been you know complaining about the UI of MetaMask for some time. And I think they've done an exceptional job. So I'm really excited for that project. So that's shilling the book. NFT plays, you know, invested in Yield Guild games. Gabby Dyson is an incredible founder. I met him when I was at Wave uh, in 2018 or 2019. I did a blockchain-based gaming uh, research report with a couple of the guys on the Wave team. Really thought that that was, that was a, a use case for blockchain that actually made sense, kind of in-game items that you could own and port between different uh, different universes, let's call them, or different multiverses. Um, and I've seen kind of the technology evolve from ERC-721 to ERC-1155, which allows you to make multiple NFTs versus just kind of one for each individual, which was kind of just challenging from a tech standpoint. And anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm just getting super excited about these projects, I'm like rambling right now. Gavin no, Dyson, go for it. Go we, for it. We did the blockchain-based gaming report. Um, Gabby had a game that he had launched and I'm blanking on the name, but I actually consulted him on a lot of the trends that he was seeing. So he was almost like, an, uh, you know, an advisor on that, uh, project and really helped kind of open my eyes to this world. And then, you know, I kind of dropped the ball on it, um, personally and, you know, he and I didn't stay in touch as much, but he got really deep into the Axie ecosystem, uh, and into Axie infinity at that time and kind of continued to kind of play and breed, Axies in game and earn and was there when they launched AXS and, you know, really cool story. Like when, when COVID hit, uh, the Philippines went on lockdown and there was like something like a 40% unemployment rate. I'm pretty sure. I
0: remember this when, when they were
1: all earning AXS in in game with Axie Infinity. Yeah. So he started training people like, this is how you open a MetaMask. This is how you participate in Axie. And, you know, you breed, you know, you breed rare Axies and teaching them how to play and they were earning money doing it. And then Uniswap Airdrop came and it was like life-changing dollars for some of these people. I mean, especially if they held it, it's like talking like 10,000 10, plus. I don't know what the equivalent would be today. Maybe like 30, 40,000. I'm blanking at what the price was it's, when it it's, dropped. It's, Somebody wrote yesterday it was one PS5,
0: and I think now it's 22 PS5. So I don't know if that means the retail price of a PS5 or the, uh, the black market price of a PS5. Yeah, so it's, it's crazy. So
1: like these people in the Philippines getting an annual salary from a Uniswap airdrop, and maybe they had opened multiple MetaMask accounts, right? And Gabby did all of that. And you know, I think what he realized was that playing um, games in virtual worlds is actually like it can be a job. And you can earn money, a pretty good living doing it. And so created this guild of players to um, interact with and support new blockchain based games in terms of cash flowing NFTs in the metaverse, right? And there are people that own these NFTs that don't have the time to actually use them to, uh, to maximize the cash flows from them. And YGG can do that, right? And we'll start to see kind of NFTs getting rented out to other players for them to build cash flow off of it, right? So almost like lease owned relationships for land in the metaverse and other assets. I mean, this, so, this
0: sounds a little bit like you know, not exactly, but like the Brock Pierce origin into crypto story a little bit. You know, with what he was yeah, doing beforehand.
1: Absolutely. I mean, he was doing kind of the the gold mining for World of Warcraft and basically selling it to users. So a lot of a lot of this stuff is like history just repeating itself. I think. Um, I think like what what's really interesting to me is kind of this convergence technology. So I believe that we will have ubiquitous AR, um, in our lifetime. So that hard the hardware for, uh, um, augmented reality will catch up, uh, eventually. And we're going to see digital fashion and digital items, um, and the revenue generated from them exceed the revenue generated from like regular retail fashion. And the reason I believe that is a big take. That's a big take. Yeah, that's a big take. That's my hot take on this one. That's a I big think, take. You, you like glanced over that. That's a really hot take. So, that's a hot take. I mean, I think, you know, I invested in a company called Aglet, which just started launching NFTs. They're basically Pokemon Go for sneakerheads. You know, imagine basically you're walking around wearing your Moji contact lenses, which are AR contact lenses. I think that's the name of the company that's building those. And everybody is just rocking a one of one NFT that was designed by their favorite creator and it's over you know a hemp shirt and recycled adidas shoes from recycled ocean plastic and people no longer care about what you're wearing in the real world because they can see this digital overlay on top and there's this infinite creative space around it and expression that we can have and i think that um you know i think that money flows where attention goes and so we're already spending so much time in front of screens um, in our own digital worlds, whether it be on Telegram, which I'm sure many listening to this are familiar with, um, or other kind of metaverses like Decentraland or Fortnite, I think there's just going to be a ton of money spent on these in-game, uh, Yeah, I mean, not I, in-game, just virtual items. I mean, I, I was... Very dismissive.
0: I still remember NFT NYC, another thing you know that I missed out on, and you know being told <laughs> I have to go, and you know being like, "What the hell? Like, who's gonna buy a virtual this or a virtual that?" And you know, you're you're starting to we're not there yet, but we're starting to see. It. I mean, if you look at fan tokens on Chili's, right? There's certainly a lot of people that are that are interested in participating that are not necessarily crypto native folks. I mean, you know, obviously the NBA Top Shot mania or euphoria. Um, you know, you know, crypto punks and, you know, there, there's so, there's so much going on and, you know, a lot of it is still speculative, but, I'm, you know, definitely starting to hear and to see lots of people get interested, you know, a little bit of, a uh, shilling our, our book, uh, not, not, not an investment, but we read a quarterly report with eToro every quarter. And we're actually coming out with like a 20 piece, a 20 page research piece on NFTs uh, and, and people on our team share a very similar you know, point of view, maybe not as as elaborate as yours, but, but similar. And so, you know, the next question is, where do you think the value accrues? Right? You know, there, there's the, obviously the protocol versus application argument on whether or not Ethereum should be valuable, the things that are built on top. But let's talk NFTs. Is it rareable that should accrue value? Is it flow that should accrue value? Or is it the things that are being built on top that should accrue value? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um this is a great question and one to which I obviously don't know the answer but I can provide some some guesses. Um I think, you know, talking about missing things, you know, I was speaking to super rare rare bull. Um I didn't look at OpenSea because they weren't raising at the time. By the um, way, I
0: was at Gemini's office right after they bought Nifty Gateway and I was like, "Why the hell did you do this?"
1: Yeah, uh, and I mean, look at how <laughs> successful that's been so far. Now we're, we're experiencing a local top in NFTs, right? Anybody who's tracking the data, you know, top shots is going through a little bit of a bear market, you know, the number of buyers and the dollar value going into NFTs is, is declining off of the peak. I think you could point to like the people auction is kind of peak NFT in terms of this, this particular mini cycle. And that's, that's okay. Right. These things are going to go through, through boom and bust cycles, but you know, these platforms have done exceptionally well. And I had the opportunity to invest in, in a bunch of them uh, in Q3 of last year. And I passed And, and I passed because I just saw businesses with zero economic profit, you know, they're going to compete each other to really, really slim margins. And like, I just don't understand the benefit of one platform over the other. And there's just massive competition that's entered the space. So I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that the exchanges will be where the value is captured. Although I've been kind of waffling on that lately, obviously, because they're all raising at much higher valuations. And I'm like, I really should have just invested in these. Like, clearly I missed it. Classic crypto stuff. But like, you know, if you look at ERC20, if you look at basically like fungible tokens, who who have created the most value in that market, it's all the exchanges, right? So- perhaps it'll be the same with NFTs. I think what's most exciting about NFTs is like, is is the ability for the creator to continue to capture value over time. You know, it's like you get like a SaaS revenue model in the future um, for an initial creation because you continue to profit from, it's not really SaaS because it's not as consistent, but you continue to profit from secondary transactions of your NFT. And then you can start to see creators doing things like that for secondary transactions of their NFTs, you know, like Blau just launched this melting faces campaign and he just continues to kind of push the bar forward on this stuff. You know, this melting faces campaign where he launched these open editions, editions on Nifty Gateway called faces. And then he was basically like, if you burn a certain number of faces, then you immediately receive a new one of one NFT And if you burn one, then you're in a lottery for another rare one-of-one NFT from Blau. And now all of a sudden, there's like a lot of secondary market volume because, oh, maybe faces should be worth more because they're scarce. Or maybe I want to buy four more so I can burn it and earn this other thing. Or maybe I want to burn one so like now the value of faces goes up. Plus like all the resale value generates more income to the creator. So I'm just thinking about like all these new games that you can create um, for artists uh, and other creators, like you know, fashion designers who are going to do some you know some digital fashion stuff, and I think there's just an interesting universe where creators might be able to capture a lot more value. If you look at the music industry, you know, you, you look at another person that's been forward thinking on on NFTs, um, RAC uh, Dre, and and you know, like he's posted before, like what you can make from streaming on Spotify is like. A middle tier artist, right? Like you just don't you just don't make money. And then touring has stopped. And what an incredible gift NFTs have been to these musicians to come on and be able to go direct to their super fans who want to own these assets. I think Tyco is doing a drop tomorrow, which I'm really excited about. It looks beautiful. And, you know, capture the value created by by their output in a way that was not available to them before when live touring and 360 revenue has declined so much. And that's one thing that I gained. From being in the music industry, like, you know, one of the attractive things, one of the the kind of like ideas that attracted me to crypto beyond Bitcoin in 2017 was all the platforms that were trying to build um, platforms for uh tickets, you know, event tickets on the blockchain. And there's this major problem in the ticketing industry where you know it's essentially they get botted, right? So it's almost like it's almost like these IDOs. Or right, and there. the
0: and the musician doesn't benefit. It's the it's the
1: uh, you know the reseller that does. It's the reseller that does, right? It's the scalper <laughs> that comes in in bots, and it's it's Ticketmaster, frankly, because they have a secondary market for tickets, and they get a percentage revenue on that, which is in some instances higher than the primary sale revenue share that they have. So, you know, I always found interesting, like if you could track the resale of tickets and actually programmatically deliver value back to the creator from those resales, I think that would be very interesting. And so, you know, like the music industry showed me some of these things that are broken and 360 revenue has become a huge part of producers' revenue streams, which 360 revenue describes everything outside of just selling their music digitally because like nobody's buying CDs anymore. Um, So touring revenue, merch, things like that, and creating these communities Mm -hmm. of super fans and selling them product in terms of in, in digital merchandise, which a lot of this NFT stuff is. Whether it be audio or video or, or, or still images, is just a new way for creators to monetize, and I think that's that's super cool. So long as they're long term oriented and they're not trying to like fleece their their fans to get a quick buck, which you know we're seeing a lot of agencies come into the game now. I think each of them have their own NFT division: CAA, UTA, um, WME, and we know there'll be a lot of rent seeking. We know that, look. We've been in this space long enough to know that. When there's a gold rush, you get all sorts of characters coming into the game. Oh yeah. But, but NFT is like, did you imagine that the the term NFT would go mainstream?
0: No, never in a million years. Never in a million years. I thought it was stupid and I thought it was fringe within crypto.
1: Uh, yeah, exactly. It's like this fringe concept. And now all of a sudden I think because of the because of the um the kind of like rocket fuel or the the well, oil it reminds the me of it reminds Miles. me of the
0: you know everybody's getting rich and you're not right that 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 uh the cover yeah, yeah, of the magazine with the bitcoin by you know, the way, it's just,
1: great reference because today somebody actually sold that as an nft and oh, i really? think they donated the proceeds to um uh to gitcoin grants
0: yeah no i mean i i didn't i i didn't you know Foresee it. Look, I'm still confused by some of it. I mean, you know, I still haven't wrapped my head around like, could you mint one NFT on Ethereum and then mint the same NFT on Near and then the same NFT elsewhere? And are are they still one of ones? Like, you know, what is the idea of like cross chain NFTs and what is valuable? What's not? How do you even value these things? But I guess in some ways, it's kind of similar to artwork, right? I mean, how do you value artwork? It's whatever somebody's willing to pay for it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and we um we recently invested in, in a protocol called UpShot which is trying to create more efficient price discovery um for these illiquid assets which can enable a lot of different things like for example borrowing lending against the NFTs which I think is going to be a huge market space um already in the art world, right? Like lending out your lending out your work of art to a museum is quite lucrative. You know, borrowing cash against your the art that you keep in your home is something that you can do. And so I think digital art will will follow that. Um, yeah, will follow I think the trend. challenge is,
0: you know, as they know and I'm sure you know, is just going to be how the hell do you value this and how much are you willing to give a loan for <laughs> if you're taking the artist collateral?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's what Upshot is trying to solve in terms of like, they it's, it's a question and answer protocol that is basically trying to pull a bunch of users who have skin in the game, essentially as like a prediction market to determine whether or not you know, an NFT is fairly priced as a first use case. Um, And the idea is to answer, you know, a bunch of subjective questions where you're incentivizing the users of the protocol to answer in the most honest way, but also in the most correct way. So, you know, I I think we'll see a lot more experimentation with these sort of things in the NFT world to make pricing a little bit more transparent, Um, you know, fractional, another, another protocol that is, you know, fractionalizing NFTs. I think Niftex is another one you know when you have the ability to to trade pieces of these things then there's more of a market for the fungible asset and i think you can get a better sense of what the market values I, i'm an nftx bag holder i think that's super compelling also like you know outside of the open metaverse thesis right like lp positions are going to be nfts insurance contracts are going to be nfts mortgages will be nfts so there's a lot of use cases for them um, within the DeFi ecosystem as well
0: and and what do you think, uh, you know, this concept of wash trading in NFTs, right? You know, the idea that, you know, if you want to um, not recognize capital gains, right, you can, you know, buy something and sell it to yourself for super cheap, right? Or you can do all these weird things, or you can mint an NFT, sell it to yourself for a lot of money, and then, you know, make it look like it's on a discount and, you know, you know, then resell it for, you know, 20, you know, 80% less, right. And, you know, all these kinds of ways that people are trying to game, you know, either, you know, pricing on NFTs or game paying their taxes. I mean, I'm curious to your thoughts or potentially even launder money. I mean, you know, I'm not suggesting that this is being done at scale,
1: but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's been discussed. Yeah. I mean, I think money laundering is an issue in, you know, in the traditional art world as well. Right. And I think if you, um, you watch a uh, tenant that movie and all these kind of offshore art storage houses. I forget what they were called. That's, they exist. It's a fascinating, fascinating thing just to keep out of the reach of, uh, tax collectors. You know, this, these types of games exist. I think, uh, it came out, I guess, what's the artist's name? Damien Hurst, the guy that did the skull, the, the bejeweled skull, mm-hmm. you know, it came out that, uh, is that his name? Blank. Oh yeah. Okay. For the love of God. It was a sculpture by Damien Hurst You know, I think that was purchased for a hundred million dollars. I'm blanking on it. Um, let's see. What was the sale price? Asking price of 50 million sale, um, 50 million pounds, which at the time I think was like one of, you know, just a windfall for the auctioneer. It turns out that he was part of the collective, to purchase it. And it was a bunch of insiders pumping the value of the rest of his art. Right. So these games are played in the real world. They'll be played in crypto. You know, I think, I I mean, I don't know the team at at MetaPurse, MetaCoven. they seem like great people, but you know, like you create B20 and then you go, you know, you go participate in the, in the Beeple auction and bid that thing up to 65 million when you're holding a lot of other Beeple assets, right? Like there, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome I think is the, um, the right. Charlie Munger saying so there's a lot of games that are being played in NFTs in broader crypto in other financial markets in other non-financial markets um i think people will always will always try to try to do those sorts of things
0: yeah i mean i could go on and ask you questions for hours and hours and so you know i want to be respectful of your time so i'll, I'll ask just a couple more okay, um cool. You know, the first is, you know, what are your thoughts on the Coinbase IPO today? Both in, you know, terms of the outcome, right? With I think it ending the day at about 330 dollars. Um, you know, the outcome there, uh, you know, what happened before the IPO and and what you think the long-term ramifications are going to be. Yeah, so um, or the direct listing, I should say, cuz I'm sure somebody yeah, in the comments it is going to Somebody's going to crack me. The direct listing of Coinbase.
1: I mean, I think I think it it pumped above the reference price, right? So reference price was two hundred and fifty, and it landed where three hundred and thirty, um, uh,
0: around there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I th- I, I think that I would if I had to say where where it landed price wise on day one in the realm of expectations, uh, it would probably be right around below average, just below average. I'm, I'm in the same. I'm in the same boat. I think people would have liked to have seen it land above hundred billion. One thing I, w- I was told that's kind of interesting is I think that the Coinbase employees have like three days to sell and then they have to file to sell after that. Uh-huh. So I think you'll expect, I think that institutions know this is like a quirk of direct listings and are going to wait until that period is over to, to make their purchases. I think, as far as like like what is it on a on a NTM revenue multiple at hundred billion, it's something like it's something like twenty five x. I think that I think that sounds right. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's right in line with with other kind of recent um, recent offerings on the public markets. So one, I think it's an incredible. Again, I said this earlier. I think it's an incredible thing for the space. Um, I think it's it's the day that the institutional crypto narrative is solidified we've been talking for years about the institutions are coming the institutions are coming and this last 12 months has been just that they're here you know and they're and it's still early i mean that's what's so crazy i was having i was talking to um the manager of a large family office in los angeles today uh who was you know just exploring the space like his his client and his client's friends who are multi-billionaires are, have zero capital deployed to crypto still. You know, like it's it's still so early, but like this, I think will mark as a watershed moment in the adoption curve of, of crypto. Um, I think the market has gotten, a, the crypto market has gotten very euphoric um, over this first quarter. A lot of people have made a lot of money often without, you know, much effort as long as the money printer is on, we might continue. You know, it's it's hard to say, right? Like all risk assets continue to be bid, but I do think there is kind of like, there was leverage flowing in that was ahead of this Coinbase IPO doing pair trades with other exchange tokens. And um, I I wouldn't be, I haven't looked at exchange tokens, but I think you know, they might've dropped based on this, this outcome. They did, I was sad, I was sad. Yeah, I would expect that. I mean, I think it was below. Like, I, people were talking 150 billion, 165 billion.
0: I um, heard at one point on a uh, one private market, not like FTX, but an actual, you know, a credit investor private market. You know, people were paying 130 billion for shares a, a few weeks ago.
1: Yeah, so I don't know. We'll see. I mean, it, it's um, it's kind of like a classic sell the news type thing in the crypto space. It felt like. I, um, I,
0: I had a feeling it was going to be the case. I've been saying that for a few days and I didn't I didn't sell the news.
1: Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens. It's, it's the Wild West out here, man. Nobody knows. But it's exciting. I'm really happy for all the Coinbase investors. I mean, I know some people that were in that seed round. I'm really happy for the employees who busted their ass through cycles. You know, a year and a half ago, it was not cool to be in crypto.
0: Two years I remember ago, let's we call it. we we changed words on our website from crypto to digital assets at one point oh, we started man. to make that change capitulation
1: it's yeah. all good. we didn't fully
0: I mean, do it we didn't fully do it we're still here
1: yeah I mean it, it was we're yeah I'm still here as well but you know when I left wave in 2019 you know there wasn't a lot of opportunity out there right I had to fly solo for that time and um I think I think that it's exciting for the space that there's just so much opportunity for investors, for financial analysts, for, you know, credit risk analysts, for engineers, for business development and marketing people. Like, please, if you're a marketing person listening to this, interested in the crypto space, all of our projects need good marketing talent. Oftentimes I find the founders that are the most technical, they they underweight the importance of marketing. You know, there's a lot of vaporware projects out there that do great job marketing. Like, who's to say that that marketing... Te- those marketing tactics are below a project that's actually technically sound and is building something cool. Don't you want to get your product, your token, if you're legitimately building for the next five to 10 years into the hands of as many retail users as possible? Of course you do. Right. So like don't underweight the power of marketing. Yeah. Anyways, I'm kind of like just super excited about the space. Whatever happens to prices this week after Coinbase doesn't really matter. I think bear markets are cool too uh, because there's a lot of shit that gets washed out. And yeah, I think we're all just having fun.
0: And so, you know, the question that we ask all of our guests and, you know, we've hit on this at at points is just, you know, fundamentals, right? It's the fundamental value podcast ever, you know, after all. So, you know, how, how do you define fundamentals for digital assets?
1: So I think, you know, that's why I think people love DeFi, right? Because you can actually, you can look at user count, you can look at, transaction volume on exchanges, you can look at assets deposited, fees earned, and you can start to actually model out cash flows um, for token holders, assuming that the token holders have rights and the ability to change governance to make sure that, you know, they can collect fees. And I think that beyond that, right, like, I would say the strength of your community um, in terms of the active participation of community members in your in your channels, your social media channels is super, super important. Um, whether you're pre-product or post-product, uh, having a rabid community that has a religiosity to it is a recipe for success in crypto. And crypto runs on memes, I mean, for better or worse, it runs, you know, the world runs on memes, the world runs on narrative. And if you have a community that's bought into your narrative like Bitcoin, you know the the biggest meme coin of them all, um, with holders that are absolutely religious in nature, myself included. Um, I think that you'll find success in crypto. So that's a fundamental indicator that's important to look out for.
0: And so, my last uh, and final and fun question uh, is: is what is the shittiest shit coin that you have ever purchased? <laughs>
1: Oh man, there's too many. Um, I should have prepared for this one. Um, just throw out names, just list them out. Well, let's see. So <laughs> I invested in a company called BlockX in late 2017 that positioned itself as the Coinbase of Europe. I don't think they ever launched. It was, <laughs> it was the Coinbase of Europe when Coinbase was the Coinbase of Europe. And yeah, that was just. Absolute- this was a token? It was a token deal. Yeah, it was a token deal. Uh, it was like really early on in my crypto days. I was super excited about it. I'm also like hesitant to name projects that I've invested in that were absolute shit, but still have large communities and, and market <laughs> caps. So I'm not, not trying to get like burned on tri- on Twitter by a bunch of a non oh, oh, um, But yeah, BlockX was one of them. I mean, it's funny. I actually, I'll, I'll give you one quick story about something that I thought was a shit coin after the fact, but turned out to be not so... I invested in a project called Ecomi in late 2018. Um, ah, I, I, that's come back from the dead. Yeah, it came back from the dead, and so like I went through like the emotional cycle of like, all right, this is really cool. You know, a wallet for NFTs. They have a bunch of great licenses. They had like DC and Warner and some others, and I was like, this is awesome. But like, there was also this token economic element to it, which was it was going to list at one Satoshi per omi token. And like only with a BTC pair, so could it ever drop below one Satoshi, Um, which I think was kind of a funny, ridiculous crypto experiment, like uh, investing in an asset that could never go down in price. But like, of course, it listed and it was paired against USDT and against Ethereum and you can go smaller units there. So it did very much go down in price like 90 percent. (laughs) And has since come back from the dead. That's like
0: the most crypto thing I've ever heard. Like, let's build something that can't go down in price.
1: Yeah, it was so crypto, dude. It was like, it was hilarious. (laughs) Oh my God. Like the shit that I bought into at that time is is funny. But I mean, because there was some real product behind it, real traction, you know, they're they're still building and NFTs have taken off. And so um, it's done really, really well, which is great. But man, biggest miss uh, was I met sbf you didn't ask this, but I have to share because I love sharing it with everybody. Yeah, 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 I met SBF We can do we can do a Hong whole
0: nother episode on misses. We both of
1: us can go through all the things that we've missed. Yeah, absolutely. FTX. I met SPF in at Token 2049 in Hong Kong right after Jihan from Kinetic. I had a great meeting. I left thinking this guy's gonna make a shitload of money. He's gonna change the game. And um I, I, I dropped the ball. I just passed it on to other people at the fund, started mm-hmm. waffling. I mean, that's why you have to have conviction in this space because people don't remember or might not remember. But like at the time that FTX launched, there was so much FUD. It was like, why would you want to invest in an exchange where the market maker is building the exchange, you know? Alameda's. I remember hey, I was
0: listening to I think it was Venture Coinist I think it was Luke Martin I think it may have been SBF's like first podcast or one of his first podcasts when he was describing FTX and I was so dismissive too.
1: Yeah, people were dismissive, right? But I just met this guy. I was like, what a what a charismatic guy who gets it. He's so smart, so Galaxy brain. And anyways, the fund ended up passing, and then I wanted to do a personal investment, but the the seed A had closed, so the price was double, and I was like, I'm not paying double the price. <laughs> It was 20, 20 cents.
0: <laughs> this is on FTT at 20 cents. Yeah,
1: FTT at 20 cents.
0: And it's, it's over $20 now, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, we'll get them next time. We'll get Deep them next time. Sky. And I hope... I hope oh. that the next episode we record is on how all of these NFT bets uh, and metaverse bets are playing off for you guys, playing well for you guys. But I really appreciate this. I had a I had a great time. I could ask you questions for hours. But but thank you so much for joining.
1: Man, thanks for having me, Josh. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun, and you know, maybe maybe your listeners will will get a kick out of it. We'll see.